Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, June 9, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. Working from her home in the Bristol, Connecticut area, Sarah Abbott. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana. The big game last night at Major League Baseball, the Braves and the Mets. The Mets having uh, blown leads of at least three runs in the first two games of this series, and last night, they took a lead again. 3-1, top two. Pitch. Nemo swings, gives this one a ride, right field. Acuna back, looks up, it's gone! Grand slam, home run! Brandon Nemo, oh, what a shot, what a lift! Into the seats near the chop house. Brandon Nemo with a grand slam, and the Mets have flipped this one on its head. It is 5-3 New York in the top of the second inning. Brandon Nimmo with that grand slam. That from WCBS. Francisco Alvarez hit his second homer of the game to make it 10-6. 1-2. Alvarez swings. Is this one a ride? Center field. Harris back. Looks up. It is gone. Over the yellow line in left center field. Second homer of the game. El Troll. Francisco Alvarez flexing his bicep around third. He has hit another bombosa. It is 10-6 Mets in the top of the sixth. But the Braves would come back. Orlando Arcia, after what seemed to be a missed call on a check swing, uh, did this against David Robertson. Again, a 3-2 and the pitch on the way. Hit high in the air to deep left field. This might get out of here. Arcia says, we ain't dying right here. It was do or die, and he knocks one out of here to tie the game. That from 680, the fan. And then in the bottom of the 10th inning, Ozzy Albies came to the plate, two runners on base. Two on, two out, the pitch. Swung on, belted, deep right field. Get out of here, Ozzy. the dagger Ben you got the dagger look at that celebration at home plate Man, what a party that from 680 the fans so for the Mets a frustrating series and some concern because Pete Alonso was hit by a pitch the other day he returned to New York for further testing Thursday uh, and uh, we'll probably get more word later on Friday from the Mets about his status the Blue Jays and the Astros it was five all bottom of the fifth inning and this happened 3-1. Belt whistles one into right field. Down for a base hit. He gives the Blue Jays the lead. Chapman is in to score. Here comes Kirk. The throw to the plate is in time. The Blue Jays will not get two, but they get their go-ahead run. Driven home by Brandon Belt. That from Sportsnet 590. The fan, the Blue Jays win 3-2. And during the course of this game, Jordan Alvarez exited early because of oblique discomfort. We'll get more information on that injury later today as well. The Diamondbacks and the Nats were postponed due to poor air quality. That, of course, uh, led to postponements of games in Philadelphia and New York the two days prior. The Yankees placed pitcher Nestor Cortez on the 15-day injury list with a rotator cuff strain. That designation is retroactive to Monday for Cortez, who was 5-2 with a 5-1-6 ERA. The Yankees lost game one of a doubleheader. They had to play a doubleheader against the White Sox to make up for the game that was postponed because of the smoke uh, on Wednesday. The Yankees lost game one of the doubleheader. In game two, Glaber Torres came through. 
High drive, left field, going back, Frazier, turning, looking. See ya! Home run, Glaber Torres! A two-run blast! Two-nothing Yanks! That from Michael Kay on the Yes Network. Yankees win game two, three to nothing. The Guardians face the Red Sox, and Jose Ramirez had himself a day. Down to 3-1. A swing and a drive! High! Deep to left center! Away! Back and gone! And it's 3-0 Cleveland! And it's 3-0 Jose Ramirez! Now the payoff pitch to Ramirez. Swung on! Hit high! Hit deep to right! Majestic blast to the seats in right. And Cleveland has taken a 4-2 lead and the first three-homer game in Jose Ramirez's career. Those calls from WTAM. Noah Syndergaard went on the injured list after his latest rough outing. He got uh, hammered pretty good by the Cincinnati Reds the other day. Dave Roberts uh, telling reporters that, uh, you know, they've got to try to get something right with Noah Syndergaard as he goes forward. The Phillies, the Tigers, a game decided by the sons of former players. Tyler Nevin, son of Phil Nevin, the Angels manager, ended Zach Wheeler's no-hitter in the top of the eighth. Here's the pitch. Swung on, line to right, base hit. And that's a clean single all the way. Around to third goes Marisnik. And Tyler Nevin... Breaks up the no-hit bid here in the eighth inning. Let's hear the appreciation for Zach Wheeler. Then, in the bottom of the ninth inning, Cody Clemens came to the plate with a chance to end the game. Here's the pitch. Swung on. Line to right. It's a base hit. It's going to win the game. It goes all the way to the wall. Turner has scored, and Clemens has won it. The Phillies strike for two in the bottom of the ninth, and they sweep the Tigers 3-2 the final tonight. That from Sports Radio 94 WIP. Earlier in the day, the Rays and the Twins and Harold Ramirez separated the Rays from the Twins. The pitch, swinging a drive on a line to center, sending back Taylor to the track, to the wall, leaps, it's gone! Triple, a homer on back-to-back pitches, and just like that, the Rays lead 3-1 to in the fourth. That from 620 WDAE. The Dodgers face the Reds. Clayton Kershaw on the mound, and uh, he got support from Chris Taylor. Next offer, and Chris hits a ball high in the air to center field. Slight right center. It's carrying to the wall. Barrero, he looks up, and he's gone. A home run. Chris Taylor with a ball that just kept on carrying out. It's a solo shot, his 10th home run of the season, and the Dodgers extend their lead to 4 to nothing. That from 570 LA Sports. Sarah, what else you got? All right. Well, Buster, I don't know if you've heard, there's some major drama going on in the golf world with the PGA Tour and Live Golf merging. So be sure to check out SB Pod as he breaks down the latest news, as well as gives his reactions and some of his opinions about the whole situation. That's SB Pod. Listen wherever you are listening to this podcast. All aboard. It's the Ravi Train with Carl Ravage on 
Baseball Tonight. Arriving train, Carl Rich, play-by-play man on Sunday Night Baseball. And this Sunday, that means in being in Yankee Stadium for the Red Sox against the Yankees. And the next week, you're headed to Omaha for the College Baseball World Series. One of the great cities in America, one of the great events every year. Um, Super regional start today, and then they continue uh, best two out of three. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of good teams. You know, it's interesting. I was at Wake Forest probably seven, seven or eight, maybe a little longer years ago, and they were building a pitching lab there, Buster, and they were they were throwing a lot of money into their baseball program, and it's just kind of interesting knowing what they were investing in then and where they are now. They're the number one team in the country. They do everything really well. Um, you know, they're this season, at least with the talent they have and the way they're playing, are in that group of teams that easily could win the whole thing. And they're doing things that SEC teams usually do or or the North Carolinas when they're playing really well in the ECC do. They hit, they pitch, they feel, they run. They've been outstanding. But it's, it's just it's one of those things where in our world of baseball, where teams, whether collegiate uh, or professional, try to have a blueprint and then see it develop and realize it, you know, 10 years later, whatever it may be, that it worked. And I, I just remember being there and they were talking sort of visionary about, well, we have this lab, we're going to have the equipment, we got this incredible donor who's so supportive, and here we are with them, the number one team in the country. It, it somehow translates to some of the best laid plans of major league teams, some of which are working and others which which are not. But, yeah, the College World Series is a great event. Looking forward to getting there uh, after the Mets-Yankees game on Wednesday. We'll be there Thursday, and we all start on Friday. Well, you got a lot of attention for a tweet you sent out last night where you kind of linked the possibility of Alex Cora going back to his alma mater uh, in Miami. And it was very interesting given the, you know, the timing of everything going on with the Red Sox because at this point, you know, with the struggles that they've had, they're at a crossroad. Like, if they're going to be relevant in 2023 in the major leagues, they're going to have to start playing better. What was behind the tweet? Yeah, I, you know, I think it, it was it was sort of the, the, I'm going to Omaha. Alex has been to Omaha. Um, Alex worked with us in Omaha. I, I know how much college baseball and that school meant to him, and I had no idea that uh, Gino was leaving the program. So when he left, I'm like, well, there's a vacancy. It was really much less about the Red Sox and their current situation as much as it was. I know how much Alex loves the Miami Hurricanes. I know how much he loves teaching baseball. It was really because all of a sudden there's an opening and that was his alma mater and he loves to coach. It, it really had little to do with the Red Sox. And then when I sent that out there and I, you know, look, I, I'll be honest. I, I don't I don't see him leaving. Um, I don't I hope the Red Sox wouldn't think that it's a good idea to let him go. I think he's as good as anybody doing this at the professional level. But um, when I said it, and then, uh, you know, our buddy Pete Abraham, who covers the Red Sox, said somehow this might be tied into watching the team implode or Corey Kluber struggle. Like there was no connection to that. But Pete Abraham's response on Twitter was, well, he might right now. And I didn't even know that was going on with the team. It really was about his love for Miami and and what it meant to him as a as a kid and a player, that was really it. But it I, we've seen a lot of 
major leaguers and professional coaches go back to the collegiate route. And we've seen it go the other way too, but who knows? I mean, yeah, the team is struggling, but it had nothing to do with that. Yeah, Peter Abraham, of course, covers the Red Sox for the Boston Globe. Um, and, and it's interesting when I, you know, read your tweet, I, I the first thing that popped into mind is there are a lot of managers that we know who have no interest in doing anything other than managing. Bruce Bochy comes to mind. Like I've known Bochy for 30 years. Yeah. I've never right. heard him say, you know what? I want to be the front office guy. I want to be making these decisions. He doesn't do that. Alex is one of the people in the game I think could do anything. Yeah, <laughs> like Alex, he could run a college baseball program. He could oh, be yeah. general manager of a team, which he was for Team Puerto Rico. You no, know, uh, in the World Baseball Classic, uh, he could take on any role. I think he's got that sort of baseball mind. He's got that sort of baseball talent. He's got that sort of baseball understanding. Yeah, he, look, he's he's uniquely qualified to do a lot of things in baseball. Um, you know. Obviously, his background, his ability to speak both languages, he, he relates to because of his career, every player on the roster, he can get along. With. And yes, I think there is a part of him that would like to be the guy responsible for putting the whole thing together. College sports, as you know, is very different than it was when he played. Very different. Yeah. And the, the NIL world, uh, the power conferences, how, how much you are literally enticing an athlete to come to your school with financially has changed dramatically. And, you know, that that's a that's an ocean not everybody is comfortable or wants to swim in. Um, you know, other people at the professional level handle that. So they're kind of in charge of all that. <clears throat> but Miami has, uh, you know, resources that many other places don't. The ACC is a tremendous baseball conference. We're watching, you know, as I mentioned, Wake Forest. We're seeing Virginia, and it looks like Brian O'Connor's team could very well end up back in, in Omaha this year, if they can win a super regional, Duke has become a really good team. So there's a, to me, there's just a lot of upside to it. There's also a lot of, I don't want to leave the major league job. There's 30 of these and I'm really good at it. Uh, but he's also checked the world series box off and um, you know, he's got young kids. Uh, I'm just not certain that a, that a collegiate head coaching job at a major university power five with aspirations of winning is a lot less stressful than what he's doing now. Uh, the season is obviously shorter, but it's different. I mean, coaching college baseball is a little different than when he was there. And, you know, and, and the guys that were playing years ago and the coaches, it's very different. It's caused many coaches to leave collegiate coaching. Like, this is not what I used to do, and I'm not really comfortable living in this world, so I'm not going to do it. And Alex is at the stage in his life. He's got, uh, you know, young twins. And I do think he probably could have a more stable life as a college baseball coach, as opposed to all the travel with, uh, uh, you know, in professional baseball as manager of the Red Sox. But this is all me and you speculating. You know, Absolutely. Alex went up today and he's focused on, uh, you know, the play to the Red Sox, which is pretty serious at this point. I was looking this up uh, the other day. Now, last year, and we were on Sunday Night Baseball, we were in Houston the day they traded Christian Vasquez, which for me was the day that the White, the Red Sox front office basically waved the white flag and said, okay, we're done. They were three and a half games out of the wild card when they did that. Carl, as of this morning, and this is we're in early June, they're five games out of the wild card. They're playing terribly. Their defense has been a mess. Alex has been pretty direct about that. And he's come out and said, you know, I'm the manager of the team. I'm responsible for how we're playing. We're not playing very well on defense. 
I talk with evaluators of the teams, and they say, uh, essentially, who on that team is actually ha- has really great defensive skills? This is the team they have. Rafael Devers is the highest paid player on the team. He's an excellent hitter. I don't think anybody thinks of him as an elite guy. They've been playing effectively without a shortstop. It feels like the last three years they've played without a good defensive first baseman. They've moved people around the outfield. We, we talked in spring training how, yes, Yoshida is an impressive offensive player, but folks with other teams would not have made that investment because they thought that he was a glorified DH. He hasn't played well defensively. Uh, you know, Alex Verdugo might be the best defender they have on that team. And just coincidentally, in the last 24 hours, he gets benched for not hustling. So it's a mess right now for the Red Sox. Yeah. Do you want me to add to that? <laughs> that, was a, that, was a, that was a great summary of, of, of where they are. And I, look, the, you, you know, in the end, you are who you are. You, you look in the mirror and you assess everybody on the team. And then you look in other mirrors, and if you're the Tampa Bay Rays, you see a juggernaut staring you back in the face. If you're the Yankees, you see a team that is banged up, but when they get healthy, are probably next in line behind the Rays. When healthy, the Blue Jays are playing better baseball. The Orioles have been really good all year. The Atlanta Braves came from uh, three down in three games and beat the Mets, who spent all the money and have a lot of superstars but you look at teams that are put together really well, that just mesh, that are clicking, that when you, somebody gets hurt, you can plug somebody else in. We just we just saw the Dodgers. They're that way. Uh, J.D. Martinez is is the J.D. Martinez that he was a few years ago. That There have just been a lot of the way it's playing right now, what appear to be missteps in the direction and the decision-making that's gone on there. Again, where a lot of people will say, well, let's just press pause and see if it turns around. They're never going to catch the Tampa Bay Rays. They're not as good as those other teams with the team that they put together. They're not. Chris Sale looked great for a three-week period. He's hurt again. James Paxton can look great for a start, and then he scuffles. By the same token, people can say, well, look at Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer. Sometimes they look great. Sometimes they scuffle. I get it, but the problem is – and Go back to what our friend Buck Showalter always used to tell us about the Yankees when he was with the Orioles competing against them. The ability to, given what you want to spend financially, to cover up mistakes, the Yankees have the ability to do that. The Red Sox don't right now. They don't seem interested in doing the things that would that would energize a fan base. And I keep bringing the Mets up because the Mets did spend a ton of money, and it's not working right now. But the Red Sox didn't spend a ton of money. As you mentioned, when you go into a season with a shortstop in a year in which other shortstops were available and you let your own guy go and you didn't go after Turner or somebody else, you're you're recognizing, at least to me, and you're sending the message to your fans, we think this is, you know, you can spin it any way you want. We think this is going to work, but it just doesn't take, you know, a uh, uh, baseball genius to realize it's not it's not as good as the other teams in your division. Uh, it doesn't matter that at 31 and 31, you'd be in first place in the Central. You don't play in the Central. You've got to compete with the teams in your division. And I know we've said on this before, this podcast, they're probably the fifth best team in a league of five. 
And they're certainly entering a two-week period, which it seems crucial in terms of their internal decision whether or not to be uh, buyers or sellers as we get close to the deadline. You know, if they do become sellers, guys like uh, Kenley Jansen, guys like Kike Hernandez, I'm sure would be really attractive to other teams. But they, they always feel like they're floundering a little bit. And we had an example of this, Carl, this week with the handling of veteran pitcher Matt Dermody, okay? Uh, he was a guy who, you know, pitched overseas. And in 2021, he sent out a homophobic tweet in June of 2021, which is, you know, of course, Pride Month. And this week, this all came to light because the Red Sox were considering promoting him to the big leagues. And what we got from High Bloom was the head of baseball operations of the Red Sox was that they were aware of this back in March, back in spring training, when after they signed him and, you know, they dealt with that. They had a conversation with him. He took down the tweet. It's mind boggling to me, Carl, how they handled this. You know, this to me was PR 101. Matt Dermody was a fringy type player. Uh, and, and look, I mean, first off, in 2023, after we've had so many instances where players were found to have you know, really ugly tweets from their past. Josh Hader was an example of that. You'd think that that would be one of the first things. If you got a team of, you know, 20 analysts, maybe one of them can do a Google search and go and find if there's something like that in the player's past. That apparently was not done. But then the Red Sox, they found out this information during spring training, Carl. And at that point, they want to keep the player in the organization. To me, it was easy. You have a, you know, a, a, you speak with the player, then you present him to the media and say, look, here's Matt Dermody. He's going to talk to you about this tweet that he put out a couple of years ago. And you just shine a light on it on a sleep Friday or Saturday morning with the beat writers of the team. And I'm sure that they would have moved past it. Instead, <laughs> it becomes an issue in Boston in the middle of June. Uh, and they wind up, you know, promoting him for one start against Cleveland last night, four innings, three runs allowed, and then they DFA the player right after the game. All of it doesn't make any sense. And also, I, and I, you know, the, the way that, uh, you know, that, that this was sort of brought out without necessarily putting everyone in front of cameras makes no sense to me, especially in a market like Boston or a market like New York. Well, and you, you know, you, in the end, you just kind of qualified it within a market like Boston, New York, in no market. Like it, it you're it, right. It, it, it's kind of a tone deaf response. Um, and, you know, one of the things that people use a lot now is uh, like read the room, like read the, just, just read the environment. Major League Baseball, you know, to its credit, uh, is very much aware of these types of comments and making sure that, that if they've been in people's past, that they're addressed. Um, Gabrielle Starr, I think, who works for the Boston Herald up there, has been all over this stuff. and You can find her stuff on social media. Uh, it, it's uh, Look, I, I don't know if it's tone deaf. I don't know if it's we don't want to address it. I don't know if it's we're afraid of it. Uh, I don't know if it's a way to cover up the fact that we don't have anybody else that can pitch because of the way that this team has been put together. So we got to kind of deal, we're going to deal with the blowback of that part of it, just because we are trying to cover up a weakness, a vulnerability. We don't want to be exposed. And boy, everything was exposed last night from Dermody to Kluber to the recent or, or older, you know, uh, tweets that he had sent out. 
it's a terrible look um, for not addressing it because I think we've seen you go back to the performance enhancers. Uh, those that seemingly got out in front of it and acknowledged right. it are, are in such a different uh, or perceived in such a different light than those that, that went on to, you know, uh, in front of Congress and stood there and screamed from the top of the mountaintop. I don't know what you're talking about. I never did this, blah, blah, blah. And that, that, how many of them are even discussed anymore in terms of Major League Baseball in their history? Well, so many of those that came out in front and said, yep, I did it. I did it once. I did it twice. I did it three times. And uh, they're treated differently. Yeah, yeah, this this was, was a big swing and a miss uh, for the Red Sox and the way they handled it. Really bad. So Aaron Boone, the manager of the Yankees, is dealing with the absence of Aaron Judge. The perception among some of the reporters in the room was he was a little testy when he was asked about a Judge timeline this week. Look, I think part of the reason why he probably was a little bit testy, not only because of what they don't know, but because he knows how important Judge is to that team. No doubt. Yeah, I, look, <laughs> this is this is an acknowledgement of uh, we need him. He's the best player in the league. Might be the best player in baseball. He carried us last year. He was having an incredible start to the season. And you're asking me to answer a question I don't have the answer to. Um, so so stop. Uh, it, in a sense, it's sort of putting salt in the wound. Like, he knows he's not playing. He doesn't know when he's coming back. Look, maybe he knows this is a little more serious than we're leading on. Maybe not. But the idea that people are kind of – you know, tapping at his shoulder, like, when's he coming back? When's he coming back? You know, and, hey, can we please stop at McDonald's? I want to get a cheeseburger. Hey, can we please stop? When can we go on that ride? It's almost like children in the room yelling at the, at the dad or the mom, you know, for these things that you've said a hundred times, stop asking. That's, that's where he's at, knowing the significance of this guy and his injury and, and all that. And, you know, it, I'm always, I'm always fascinated by this is just part and parcel of, of covering sports when a player is hurt and he can't perform you get into this this visualization of player can't play player on the bench holding baseball smiling and you're like oh my gosh if he could just why can't he play knowing there's an injury but you're seeing them there and they're kind of talking and they're you know they're cheering on their teammates which is exactly what they should be doing but it's such a such a tough bridge to walk over when you're like, are you sure you can't play? Like, well, and it's, it's just a, it's a hard thing to watch because he's such a great player and such an important part of that. So look, I get, I understand the frustration, but I also certainly can see myself in a, in a seat where you're asking an organization that occasionally is reluctant to kind of shed a lot of light on injuries. You know, they've got a history of that. David Cohn will tell you that all the time. Like, and, and I think all organizations don't often tell you exactly what's going on because they don't want you to know. Uh, that's a frustrating part as a reporter to try to get answers to hugely serious questions, especially when it comes to a guy like Judge on a team like the Yankees. And it, the nature of his injury is one of those ones that, uh, unless you're living in his body or you know you're his athletic trainer, you're probably not going to know exactly what's going on. A big toe injury, Carl, is one of those injuries that has a lot of ripple effects. You know, no as doubt. a hitter, if uh, if that's not right, it's going to be a problem. DJ Lemayhu spoke about that earlier this week. So we got this uh, Bleacher tweet from Stewie, nineteen sixty nine. He asked, "Who do you think is more likely to miss the playoffs at this point, Padres?" Mets, 
or Phillies? Which of those three teams, Carl, in your eyes is most in trouble? I got a strong feeling about it. I, I, I'd probably say the Mets. Um, exactly. I, I think, That's I exactly think, where I was going. Yeah, I, I think the I think there's indications from the Phillies. There's a little bit more consistency. I think they're key players. I have more faith in Schwarber turning it around. Uh, Turner certainly turning it around given his youth. Wheeler and Nola. Uh, I don't know. It's you know, you, Wheeler, Nola, or Scherzer, Verlander. Which which pair do you want on your team right now? Given the way that they've pitched, and I have great faith in Verlander and Scherzer, but I think I have a slightly different feeling about Wheeler and Nola in that they're a little younger, um, and they're not banged up or compromised, you know, by injury. I, I think it's the Mets. I, the, the Padres, just because of the league they play in. And, and again, the I, I, I think I'm fixated on the youth of these teams and their ability to deal with the, the pitch clock in the case of pitchers uh, yep. and the impact that that seems to be having on some of the veterans and some of the very, very young pitchers as well. Um, yeah, I, The Mets is my answer to that question. Yeah, it would be mine too. They're 30 and 33 uh, and look, the way this team was designed, we knew coming into the year that they wouldn't have a dynamic offense. You know, that wasn't really who they are. You know, they're going to hit a lot of home runs. And at the moment, they're without Pete Alonso, who was sent back to New York for testing. But the way this team was designed, they needed to have a dominant rotation. And here's are the numbers. You know, more than two months into the year, Justin Verlander, seven starts, a 4.85 ERA. Max Scherzer, 3.71. Uh, Senga, 3.75. Carrasco, 5.94. For all the ranks, the Mets rank 25th in starters ERA at 4.93. And look, if that's the that's what the you know the 2023 Mets are, they're not going to make the playoffs because they have to have a rotation, especially I think you know to buy some margin for error for that bullpen, which has been has suffered the loss of Edwin Diaz, the best reliever in baseball. That that rotation just simply has to perform better. I think it's that that uh, it's that easy to diagnose where they are right now. It is, but it's not as it's not as easy for those guys to just turn it around and get hot all of a sudden, right. you know. And and it's not like an offense. I think where, where yes, like like these the Miami Marlins, and and this is part of the reason the the Mets challenges are even greater than I than I think people would have looked at and thought when the season started. Miami is really good. Miami can pitch. And now, you know, Kim Ang and, and group made a deal for a guy that's hitting 400, which is a little crazy. And there's, there's look, everything that has kind of gone wrong with the Mets, if you look at the Marlins, you'd be like, well, it's gone right for them. And and it hasn't even been a Cy Young start for Sandy Alcantara, they, but they're getting really good pitching from other guys. So it's not only the Braves that are that are a headache for the Mets. And similarly, when you think about going into a season with the Red Sox team, the way they constructed it, and the other four, they're just not as good. The Mets had run leads of three runs or more in every game against the Braves and lost them all. So on the one hand, you could say, well, they should have won all three games, and yet they lost all three games. And I do think if you look at the Braves, you say to yourself, honestly – they're a better team than the New York Mets. Doesn't mean that they won't lose a series to them. Doesn't mean that if the Mets catch fire and, and eliminate them in the postseason, that all can happen. 
But if you're really being honest, the Braves are a better team than the New York Mets are. Um, and now the Marlins are playing really good baseball. There's There are just challenges that I think beyond the age of the Mets that have risen here this season that they that the, the fan base didn't necessarily consider. And, and I can just hear Fox sitting on my shoulder saying, Marlins have been good for a couple of years now. I mean, I, if you look at the Marlins, you, you you know that like they're they're good. You know, they pitch, they can hit, they hustle, they pay attention to detail. I can hear him in my left ear telling me all the things that that I, I am aware of, but I'm not sure everybody there collectively when Steve Cohen put this team together were saying, "Do you think we're going to be behind the Miami Marlins in the National League East? Like, is that a is that a thing? And that's a real thing." Give me uh, 45 seconds on the the best player in baseball this week, Ellie De La Cruz. <laughs> yeah, I think you have to have the name Cruz in your last name uh, and be right. tall and be athletic because it, 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 I, every time I watch him run, I certainly think of the Pirates uh, guy that got hurt, and that that's you know that's unfortunate. But they're like watching the same athletic guy, the hair flying, helmet coming off, goes from from home to third in like nine seconds. Um, hits the ball hard. You know, they're, they're, it's unfortunate because it's, you're like, wow, what do we wait for? Like, look at the way he's loving this game and dominating this game and gets into his dugout to get high fives. And you look at him and you're like, oh my God, like Ellie's like a head taller than everybody else on the team. What did we wait for? But yeah, he, he's so exciting, hits the ball so hard. And, you know, the, that that's an organization that has given their fan base, you know, reason to come to the ballpark in the summer. Yep. There, there's a lot of feistiness in Bell. The team tries hard. They play well. And then all of a sudden you supplement it with this guy. And you're like, okay, uh, here's another reason to invest in the Reds right, right now. And that's a wonderful thing. He he's, he's tremendous. He's it's O'Neill Cruz and Ellie Dela Cruz. That's, that's the world that I like to live in as a baseball fan. Pretty cool. And we know that he's going to become one of Sarah Langs' favorite players because he's all over the StatCast data. It feels like every single day. And look, you and I are involved in the home run derby coverage. Uh, we don't get to pick who's in there. I'd say I'd go to Major League Baseball. They asked me that question. Like, put the guy in the yeah. home run derby this year. He would put on yeah. a show. All right, Carl, thanks for doing this. I will see you at Yankee Stadium. Sounds good. See you soon. The NFL schedule drops this week, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit VividSeats.com today. That's VividSeats.com today, code baseball. Vivid Seats, experience it live. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Corey Lavello is in the seventh season managing the Arizona Diamondbacks. And as we start this interview, the Diamondbacks are in first place in the National League West, the division that includes the Dodgers, the dominant horse in baseball of the last decade, the Padres, who were picked by many, including myself, to win the World Series, and the Giants. Corey, when did you start to see this possibility come together in the way that it has so far? Well, I mean, I'm I'm the eternal optimist, so I'm going to say that I saw this group I mean, for a while, and I saw this group gelling the way that um, they have probably at the end of last year. Um, you know, I sat down with the front office to talk about um, the timing and when something like this was going to be possible. Uh, and I kept telling Mike, we're a good baseball team, uh, and it, it's going to happen. It's going to happen hopefully a lot sooner than later. So I would say the back half of last year, we started to – exercise some some of the 21 demons uh and i think these guys went out and played real carefree um energized baseball and we started to win some baseball games we were still a far cry from where we wanted to get to last year but i think everything was kind of put in place and then in spring training i definitely started to get a vibe this group was gelling in a very special way and the talent you, you know you you've mentioned this before uh, about how much talent you guys have uh and just looking at the players when you get a feel for that, like the the collection of, of talent that was being uh, gathered in the organization? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of these kids were drafted um, in the 18-19 draft, um, and then all of a sudden, whammo, COVID hit. So I was unable to kind of check in on their development, um, and things were slowed all the way through the 21 season. Uh, as far as me being able to watch and see what they could do in a spring training setting, spring training environment. Um, but I was reading everything and I was listening to all the evaluators um, come, come through and just say how special player A, B, C, and D was um, and that they were on their way and they were continuing to grow and learn. I would say last spring training, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, we had a developmental camp uh, because the, the, the players were locked out um the, the coaching staff was looking for stuff to do and we we just triggered the idea that we were going to go in and we were going to watch all of our young players that were not rostered guys that were going to be in spring training i got a chance to see some really talented young athletes several of whom are here right now uh and then that was adding into the corbin carroll alec thomas mix i just i feel like wow we are athletic we're strong the concepts that they're hearing uh they're trusting and they're growing and learning. You could just see when you walk walk near the baseball field that they were playing on a very, very uh, elite level. I remember John Farrell telling this story about where he uh, he walks into a dugout uh, and it was a spring training game and he sees Mookie, who's like five foot nine. He goes, what? I've been hearing all these stories about him. I'm like, that's him. Tell me about the first time, your first impressions of Corbin Carroll. 
was the first day that I met him. I think we had just signed him. He can't take back practices. Him and his dad were standing behind the shell, the turtle, um, on Chase Field. And it, you know, it was a quick introduction. Corbin, Tori, nice to meet you. Um, his first swing, his first swing, barrels a baseball. It's heading towards center field back backdrop. And he stops to kind of admire it and watch it. And I'm like, you better get back in the box. That, that BP pitcher is ready to throw this ball. We don't really watch balls that aren't going out of the ballpark here. And he kept watching it, watching it, a little bit of that trophy trophy follow-through that he has. And the ball literally hit off the center field backdrop. And I thought, oh, my God, this guy's this kid's 18 years old. Uh, he's five foot ten. Heads up, good things are on their way. That's exactly what I thought at that point. And you're right. I, I kind of refer to the Mookie Betts, Dustin Pedroia, um, but these are these are these are smaller baseball players with tremendous leverage and uh, tremendous bat speed. And I watched it play out that day on Chase Field. So we got a chance to talk to him on a podcast in spring training. And of course, it jumped out right away. Like, oh, my God, he's so intelligent. Give me an example of how you've seen that manifest, you know, yeah. uh, in a game, in a situation. Well, first of all, he doesn't answer on YouTube, you know, and it's kind of scares you. It has that 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 one and a half, two second silent pause where you're like, oh my God, did he hear what I'm saying? Or hear what I asked him? Um, I've had a couple of interactions with him that stand out. Uh, one was, was, was spot on for who he is. And the other one was kind of more humorous, but, you know, we come in and we talk about one-on-ones with these kids when they, when they enter into the, into the, um, into the big league setting and, you know, ask them some questions. So I was asking, you know, what do you think? Where are you at? And his response was, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you what I'm thinking. And he proceeded to pull out, you know, in his mind, a list of things that he wanted to accomplish. Simple tasks, one of which was being successful bunning. Another was to never be a, a platoon player and to figure out how to hit left on left. Nothing like I want to win world championships. Nothing that I want to be rookie of the year. I want to be a good teammate. I want to continue to grow and learn. And here are two specific areas. Talk about granular focus. Like that's what makes him so special. The next one was more of a, a kind of a humorous interaction where I was standing on, uh, he, he stands right next to me and times up a pitcher in the dugout when he's in the hole. So it's the third batter up. And I heard that Dre Jameson him in a foot race long ago, you know, and I kind of, I, I put it in there. So I said, uh, Hey, um, Corbin, got a quick question for him. Um, have you ever lost in a, in, a, in a foot race? Has anybody ever beat you? Awkward silence for a second and a half. Pitch goes by. Pitch goes by. He finally responds. He says, yeah, Dre Jameson. He did it twice. And then he raced off to the on-deck circle. And I, I still haven't followed up because it was like, he didn't like that. He got beat. He admitted <laughs> it. And he was ready to move on. Man, the only other person I think answers questions that, and this is a compliment, is Aaron Judge. Like, Aaron Judge does that thing, too, where there's a pause, and, and you're like, you're right. You're thinking, boy, did that team have the question or something? Yeah. And then you get used to it. One of the reasons why you guys were, are where you are is because of really gutsy trade by the front offices. Not easy making trades of young players, but that's how you got Gallon. Uh, that's how you got Moreno. That's how you got Gurriel. As those play out, because you've been in baseball a long time, and, and you know those trades don't happen very often. 
what was your your feeling as as, uh, t- as trades out and how important they've been to this this team? Yeah, initially, um, trust trustworthy um, acquisitions. Um, Mike and company have been spot on with their reasoning, um, targeting the right guys. And you know, I remember I was in Buffalo, New York um, during the winter, and right over the holidays, I got caught in that snowstorm that was there. And Mike called me and said, "Hey, are you sitting down?" I need to tell you that we just traded Dalton Varsho. You know, arguably one of our most talented players, and, and he was still on the come, and he was doing his job every single day and growing and learning. But when he, he told me the rationale and the reason why, um, we got two really good players. One, a very young, heady catcher that's that's going to probably lead the charge for us for a long time. Um, you know, knowing that we do have Carson Kelly in the in the fold and he was our starting catcher. It's just, you know, they see today, tomorrow, and and two or three years down the road. And that's where I trust these guys. And and when when they when I they arrived in camp, I could see clearly as to the reason why they were the targeted guys. So we work really hard. I know they work really hard at identifying the right guys, where they're where there are needs, we were a very left-handed hitting team. And to give up somebody like Dalton Varsho, we knew we had to get some some really nice pieces back. And they have contributed mightily to our success this year. All right. Tell me what you think about the new rules. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm embracing them. I, I think, um, you know, it, I I will always say that I'm a baseball traditionalist. My my grandfather um, was was such a great influence. My dad was such a great influence in my life when it came to teaching me the the art of baseball and the rules of baseball and the appreciation for baseball. Um, and, you know, Abner Doubleday invented it over 100 years ago and the base paths are still 90, you know, 90 feet. And the pitcher's mound is 60 feet, six inches like this. This was brilliance over over many, many um, years ago. But, you know, I think baseball needs to make adjustments. It makes subtle adjustments along the way. In 13, when after the 13th season, they initiated instant replay. We thought, you know, wow, what? How does that happen? Well, it's been such an unbelievable addition to baseball that I can't imagine baseball without it. So the new rules, when they when they're when they're dropped on you, you're kind of figuring out why, why, how. But you just trust Major League Baseball. They got the fan experience in mind. They know that they're trying to push the game into the next level and to the next generation of baseball fans. We get it. We totally understand it. So it was hard for me to adjust to that time clock. That was specifically that one. Um, But I'm used to it now, and I think everybody else is, and it's helped pace the game, and it's certainly helped the fan experience as well. I've heard from a lot of managers, some of your uh, your peers – uh, where they feel like if there's an adjustment to make, they would like uniformity in a, in a pitch clock, you know, 20 seconds across the board. And that way, you know, players are more in tune with the rhythm of it. How do you feel about something like that? Yeah, I think what baseball has done is um, there's been some addendums and some additions to each each part of the rule. As long as um, um, things are pretty universal and, and, and consistent, that's all we talk about in baseball. We just want consistency. And whenever there's consistency, we have no complaints um when there's some wiggle room and some gray area that's where the frustration starts to set in so yeah i haven't i haven't necessarily heard that about just 20 20 raw seconds across the board i think it would be a good idea but once again major league baseball does a great job of addressing the needs and i'm sure if the managers or some of my colleagues were, were making that suggestion that they would make adjustments. so tori one of the pictures i love from last year's winter meetings was you talking with our colleague uh, and friend sarah langs uh, Dimebacks had a great donation uh, in her name at $25,000. Tell me what you remember about that conversation, that interaction. Yeah, you know, look, um, she she is a baseball firecracker. She loves baseball. She loves content. And it just explodes with 
accuracy and information. Um, and I started to, to log on to her before I met her. I just would, I, I would pay attention to things she's writing and saying. And, and for me to get a chance to finally meet her last year at the baseball winter meetings was, was, was my privilege and my honor. And you know, somehow, some way she felt like when in her conversation that she was honored to meet me and I'm just a dopey manager. Right. And here she's fighting an unbelievable fight. And, and, um, you know, I just I, I got down and, and told her a story about um, Silvino Bracho matching up with um, with J.D. Martinez during 2017. And it was data. The decision that I made was data driven uh, and it worked out for the Diamondbacks. But at the whole the entire time, based holding the breath, it would work out. Who knows who Silvino Bracho is? Everybody knew who J.D. I'm sorry, J.D. Martinez, not J.D. Davis was um and she appreciated that story and there was follow-through she got back to me on it and she said that she researched it which you're never surprised by and she said interesting just interesting choice but it worked out and she told me you know she she backed up the facts that that i had told her so just an unbelievable person um who who is passionate about baseball and we all are and um we're behind her we're behind her 100 percent in her fight um and she's gonna make a difference we all know that yeah, Tori, I, you know, I always tell people that there's always the battle. Who loves baseball more? Tarchin has been the reigning champion for a lot of years, but now Sarah just has crushed him. Yeah. Right. And which Tim acknowledges, because I'm like, I, I reached out to Sarah another time. I'm like, hey, Sarah, you, you got a moment to do these numbers? Shit, I'm watching a winter league game. Right. And she does that all winter, like 365. She's looking for a baseball game. I've never met anyone like that. Yeah. I, I, you know? I, I feel the same way whenever you can tell by just listening to her talk. Right. It's, like I said, a baseball firecracker. She's just exploding with information. And it's riveting. Whatever she says or writes, you just lock onto because, you know, it's gospel. All right, Tori. Thanks for doing this. Good luck the rest of the way. All right, Buster. I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how are you doing on this Friday? I'm doing great, Foster. How are you? I'm doing great, although I you know, I have a hypo- hypothesis after what we've seen so far this week. I, I mentioned to Carl Ravitch that I think that Ellie De La Cruz might move in your top three favorite players to watch because of all the StatCast data he's generating every day. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, I am a very objective and balanced and, you know, measured uh, baseball fan. And so I need to give him a bit more time before he cracks that top three up there with Juan Soto. The Juan Soto threshold. Is that what we should call it? Yeah, that's the Juan Soto threshold that Julio is up there now, too. But if he keeps doing what he's doing, he absolutely will get there. He has been so much fun to watch, and the Reds have been so much fun to watch as a result. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 458. So speaking of Ellie Delacruz, he had his first career home run in his second career game on Tuesday. And it went 458, excuse me, it was on Wednesday. I have no sense of time. That is well established. But I want to be correct. Uh, 458 feet. That is the fifth 
longest by any batter in the SACAS era for his first career home run. was also 114.8 miles an hour off the bat, which is the second hardest by any batter. In that span for his first career home run behind only Jake Berger at 115.2. And it isn't just the home runs. To your point about all of the StatCast data, in that second game, he also had a triple that was 10.83 seconds home to third. That is the fastest home to third time in the majors so far this year, and the second fastest since the start of 2020. And the only one faster in that span was Corbin Carroll in October of last year. Which brings me to a fascinating conundrum of, we've only seen three games of Ellie Della Cruz, but it feels like it's him and Corbin Carroll for that NL Rookie of the Year. Corbin Carroll has been really, really good. If Ellie Della Cruz keeps doing this, we will be talking about the two of them together for a really long time. Number two. Number two is five. So we mentioned Juan Soto at the top. We mentioned the Juan Soto threshold. So let's talk about Juan Soto. On Wednesday, he has first career five-hit game. And I know some people might have been surprised that he had never had a five-hit game. But I think that's because he walks so much. You know, he had, I believe it was six career four-hit games entering that day. And I don't have it in front of me, but I'm sure there were walks and other methods of reaching base in those games. It's not often that he gets to swing the bat for a hit five times in a game. It was also the 69th time in his career that he has reached base at least four times. That tied Mickey Mail for the second most since 1900 before turning 25 behind only Ted Williams with 81. So, again, that is the threshold that Ellie Delacruz is going for. Number one. Number one is three. So, that Braves Met series was quite the series when you think about win probability and comebacks. The Braves won all three games, despite trailing by at least three runs in every game. It was the first time since 1900 that the Braves had won three straight games after being down by three runs in each. And what I love about baseball is that when you get a team like the Braves that has so much history, that goes back to the beginning of the National League in 1876, they actually did this three times prior to 1900. In May of 1894, in August of 1893, and in August of 1876, so this is the first time since 1894 that the Braves, who have been a great franchise, especially lately, won three straight games, failing by three runs in each of them. So uh, I, you know, we're about a month away. We're coming a month away being uh, from the home run derby. I, uh, I think uh, I'll nominate on the show today 
uh, Juan Soto, uh, uh, Julio Rodriguez, Ellie De La Cruz, and get Pete Alonso back in the mix. That's a pretty good foursome to start. What do you think, Sarah? I love it. I know. It's going to be so much fun. I hope they all do it. I mean, definitely Julio was being sort of the host with being in Seattle. I remember talking after the home run derby last year, and I actually was okay with I mean, of course, I was okay with him losing because he lost to Juan Soto. But I love that he had such a great experience because you know that he would love to be the host and maybe win in his home ballpark. We saw Bryce Harper do that uh, back in 2018. So it'd be really, really fun to see that. And certainly, I mean, again, we're three days in, but I already need Ellie Dela Cruz in this home run derby. All right. Uh, as I said to you earlier this week, you always bring us numbers. I'm going to bring you some numbers. I was looking at the auction uh, on uh, the MLB.com page of all these bats that you, uh, you know, signed by players that uh, you chose to raise funds, to raise awareness for ALS. Some of the numbers I looked at yesterday, and these might be outdated in this auction that will end Monday at 8 p.m., Monday, June 12th at 8 p.m., at the Rutschman, $1,140. Liam Hendricks, $510. Jose Altuve, $1,420. Mike Trout, $2,360. Andrew McCutcheon, $2,870. Again, this is uh, this the, that uh, those bids might be outdated at this point. The leader, Dalton Varsho, $5,510, Sarah. And based on what I saw, how did you pick the players to sign the bats? So my first choice, for any team was you, they have a personal connection to ALS that I'm aware of. And there are guys like Sam Hilliard, Don Brave, Brandon Crawford, Garrett Cole, who are known to have a connection, Chris Dale being another one. And I actually sent an email out to our B reporters in MLB.com. And I said, hey, if there's someone on your team with a connection that I'm not aware of, please let me know. Uh, I found out about Tommy Nance, whose father has had ALS for almost nine years now, I believe. And another one I got from Steve Gilbert, who covers the Diamondbacks and used to cover Dalton Bershaw. Then Dalton Bershaw's wife, Brooke, her mother passed away of ALS. And I had no idea about that. And if you actually kind of Google it, he hasn't really talked about it a whole lot since being a uh, prospect, but he he has been part of that community and she has certainly done fundraisers for ALS. He homered on Friday on Garrick Day and I ended up tweeting out about that. So I think people are realizing that he has that connection. It's really, really cool to see that his is in the lead. I don't know if that's family members or other people who know about that connection, but it's really, really cool to see. By the way, uh, before you go, Tori Lavello had great specific memories of you uh, from the winter meetings. Uh, and uh, get a chance, go back and listen. And I think uh, you'll enjoy that. All right, Sarah, thanks for doing this. And I'll talk to you this weekend. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. 
That's why you gotta check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world. Or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. And Todd is a huge baseball fan. Uh, and this is demonstrated every week with the, the great, uh, you know, forgotten fields elements that he's been doing uh, for us. He's got another one today. But Todd, your fandom today will bring you to uh, Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia, where you live. Uh, because in a, a former MVP is being honored. Yes, Buster. Dick Allen, a Phillies great, who had kind of a tortured history here in the city uh, long before you and I were fans for the most part. Uh, he came back. But anyway, the Phillies are honoring him tonight. They're playing the Dodgers. I am looking forward to it. The smoke seems to have cleared out away. So good timing for that. And uh, Dick Allen, just a, you know, a fascinating figure. And you walk into Citizen Bank Park these days and you if you go in the right place, you pass by his giant number 15, which was retired by the club a couple of years ago. Yeah, and I love John Middleton, their owner, has really worked hard to, uh, you know, to put attention on Dick Allen. And and, and uh, because he's been pushing his case for the Hall of Fame. And I think especially after we've seen the bar come down a little bit for the Hall of Fame recent years, I think eventually he gets in someday. What do you think? I agree with you. He came so close a couple of years ago um, via the Veterans Committee, whatever we want to call it these days, and came up short and, of course, passed away. So something like this really should have happened in his lifetime. Seems like a deserving candidate. Uh, MVP season, as you alluded to, with the Chicago White Sox in what, 1972, I believe. 72, yeah. Yeah, and then came back to Philly. But, you know, uh, kind of a, a seminal figure in this franchise's history here because he was part of that 64 team that blew it, um, came back, played in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the, the mid-70s, just as this club was – you know, getting ramped up and getting ready to win a World Series in 1980. And, of course, you know, the history of this city in many ways, um, there, there's a lot to be spoken for in terms of uh, the relationship of the club and the community. And Dick Allen was there right at, at it. And, and, you know, an outspoken figure. And Buster, just for my own personal purposes, I had done an illustration of Dick Allen for the White Sox, which was utilized on uh, tickets and T-shirts and all this stuff a couple of years ago. 
and I designed the cover of a great book uh, called Chili Dog MVP about a changing Chicago mm. in the 70s. So anyway, I'm looking forward to being out there, Phillies, Dodgers, hopefully a beautiful night at the ballpark with clean air. <laughs> with cleaner air, for sure. And you know this, this is June, so Kyle Schwarber is going to hit a home run. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's get to this week's Forgot Field. All right, Buster. Baseball was played at the corner of Michigan Avenue and Trumbull Street in Detroit's Corktown neighborhood for 103 seasons. The first park here was secured in November 1895 by George Vanderbeck, owner of the Western League's Detroit Tigers, when he signed a five-year lease for what was previously the site of a haymarket. He built a wooden 5,000-seat ballpark and named it Bennett Field. The Western League was renamed the American League in 1900, and the AL declared itself a major league the following year. Originally paved with cobblestones, which were never removed, Vanderbeck ordered a thin layer of dirt and grass to be thrown on top, and as a result, the infield was notorious for its erratic play. As Detroit's nascent auto industry prospered and the city's population boomed, Bennett Park was raised after the 1911 season, and it was replaced with a steel and concrete ballpark that would eventually play host to 6,873 regular season games, 35 postseason games, and three all-star games. Mm. 11,111 home runs, 1-1-1-1-1, were hit there, including Babe Ruth's 700 career homer and Reggie Jackson's monster shot in the 1971 all-star game. The stadium was called Navin Field, then Briggs Stadium, and then finally, from 1961 until it closed in 1999, Tiger Stadium. 23,000-seat Navin Field was opened on April 20th, 1912, the same day as Boston's Fenway Park made its debut. And this was also the very same day that the RMS Titanic sank after hitting an iceberg in the North Atlantic. Mm. Cleveland's Osborne Engineering designed the new stadium. They also designed Comiskey Park, Forbes Field, and League Park, and would later create the original Yankee Stadium in 1923, and Jacobs Field in Cleveland in 1994. Ty Cobb stole home in the first inning of play there, thus scoring the very first run at the new venue. Navin Field was expanded in the middle of the Great Depression, a leap of faith for a community that had been suffering from an unemployment rate of something like 35%. The renovated stadium, now called Briggs Stadium, ballooned to a mammoth 53,000 seats. It hosted World Series winning clubs in 1935 and 45, and lights were added in 1948, making it the final American League ballpark to be illuminated for night games. New ownership rechristened the place as Tiger Stadium in 1961. $3,000 was allocated to amend the ballpark's four large electric signs, a cost that was contained by the fact that only two new letters were required to swap Briggs, B-R-I-G-G-S, or Tiger in neon tubing. On the other hand, 4,300 scorecard pencils needed to be replaced, along with what was described as 4,075, excuse me, 4,675 souvenir buttons and 2,370 pennants. The Tigers won the 1968 World Series, but the city was in the midst of a precipitous epic decline. Tiger Stadium was aging, and the area around it had become dangerous. 
a series of potential replacement stadiums were floated, including a triple-decked 110,000-seat behemoth that would have hosted the 1968 Summer Olympics, along with the Tigers and the Detroit Lions. In 1972, the Tigers signed a 40-year lease to play at a new $126 million dome stadium, which, which was to have been located on Detroit's downtown riverfront, scheduled to open up in 1975. This fell through. The club won the 1984 World Series, and this proved to be the final world championship at the fabled corner. In October 1997, ground was broken in downtown Detroit for what would become Comerica Park, which opened in 2000. Tiger Stadium's final season was an emotional one. I designed the official commemorative logo, which was worn on the club's uniforms that year. A nostalgic crowd of 43,356 showed up for the old ballpark's final game on September 27, 1999, a sunny, unseasonably warm day that undoubtedly brought back memories of summer's past. The Tigers beat the Kansas City Royals 8-2, and the final hit was, again, number 11,111, the final home run to be hit there, an eighth-inning grand slam off the bat of Detroit Fick. After the game was completed, the grounds crew dug up home plate and transported it to Comerica Park. The hulking, abandoned old ballpark remained standing for years after the Tigers moved. Demolition finally began in 2008. Ten years later, it was reimagined and rededicated as the Detroit Police Athletic League's Willie Horton Field of Dreams, complete with a nine-acre diamond situated right atop Tiger Stadium's old footprint. Go there, gaze out at the old center field flagpole, and imagine Tiger Stadium, a Motor City classic, which is this week's Forgotten Field. And this, Todd, that was phenomenal. Uh, this was, I think, a favorite ballpark for players to go to. When I covered the Orioles, I remember it was late in the year. I think it was 1995. And some of the members of the the Orioles, uh, Mike Messina, Alan Mills, and others, pitchers went out to take batting practice because they wanted – it felt like that the stands in right field were so close. And the other part, the thing that I always remember is as big as it was – it did feel like you were right on top of the field because uh, the stands, you know, th those rows vertically versus being spread out. Comerica Park now, I never, you know, the Yankees played the first game there and I was there for that first exhibition game. And the players talked about how it had a feel of a canyon. It was so big and open, whereas Tiger Stadium was much more uh, cozy to the degree that if you went into the, the television broadcast booth, just hung over home plate that area uh you could hear the conversations between the hitter and the umpire complaining about calls or the catcher looking back at him that's how close you were and the broadcasters mike flanagan i remember telling me about like you have to keep your head on a swivel with the foul balls coming into that box i loved old tiger stadium buster i'm remembering uh going to a game there in the late 80s and sneaking all the way down to the very first row next to the dugout. This is in late September. Nobody's looking. And these were the scariest seats I have ever sat in. Years before netting was added to MLB ballparks, um, <clears throat> you talk about keeping your head on a swivel. Thank goodness there were no cell phones at the time for us to be distracted by. And I have a couple of pictures of that, of uh, you know, Robin Yount. They were playing the Brewers directly in front of me. And uh, just terrifying seats. But what a classic old place. And it was sad to see its decline. 
I visited the site uh, during All-Star Week in 2005, and uh, it was in this state of decrepitude, but it has been reborn, as I said, and new life pumped in, but uh, it's being used and remembered, and that's the important thing. All right, let's get to this week's quiz. Uh, Sarah, how are we going to handle Taylor's absence today? You going to just guess a letter? Yeah, he's going to be letter C. Letter C. I think mm -hmm. that's what you had last week, too. Okay. Yeah. You know, when it. in doubt, pick C. Because one of these days, it's going to be C. Or <laughs> <laughs> maybe it won't be. I'm the one who makes the rules here. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. here's this week's question. The Houston Astros' very first mascot was which of the following? Was it A, an astronaut named Neil Strongarm? Was it B, a space creature named Roy? Was it C, a, a cowboy named Tex Tater? Or was it D, a Texas cavalry soldier named Chester Charge? First mascot wow. of Houston Astros, mm -hmm. an astronaut named Neil Strongarm, a space creature named Roy, a cowboy named Tex Tater, or a Texas cavalry soldier named Chester Charge? Sarah. I think I'm going to go A. I'm going to, yeah. Wow. I'm going to go that's A. The one, I got to say, Sarah, that's the one, if this were like an SAT, uh, I would probably eliminate that one right <laughs> off the bat. Uh, I think C is the right answer. You're both incorrect because it was D, a Texas cavalry soldier on a horse named Chester Charge, uh... 1977. So we hold serve over here. Well, All you know, right. the good thing is that Taylor didn't gain any ground. I think yeah. that's part of the reason why I wanted to pick C. I just the idea of him gaining ground when he's not even here would have been uh, just too much for me to take. <laughs> All right, Todd, thanks for doing this. All right, guys, thanks so much. Bleacher tweets. All right, Buster, it is time for Bleacher tweets. But really quick before Bleacher tweets, I have a rant. It's not a rant, actually. It's more of a plea. Um, I have had my Twitter hacked since March, so. Pretty please with a cherry on top, Elon Musk. Please bring me my Twitter back. I miss interacting with the Bleacher tweeters, and I feel so bad when I see everyone tag me in tweets and I can't respond or reply. Yeah, please, Elon Musk, help a girl out. Uh, Elon Musk is a regular listener to the podcast, I'm pretty sure. You know, I, I've seen him. He tweets out about baseball all the time. Yeah, he, he does a Bleacher tweeter, too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> our, our first one goes from David Crawley. The Dodgers pull, bullpen came through today for Kershaw. Just curious how many wins, losses would he have if the bullpen didn't blow the lead? Is there any other MLB pitcher who would be affected severely by their bullpen? Yeah, so my instinct is I don't have the sense that Kershaw has been one of those guys who's constantly affected by that. We certainly have seen examples of that. I remember when Matt came with it was with the Giants it always felt like the blue the bullpen would blow leads for him. Those things go in cycles. Like last year, Justin Verlander, you know, on a way to his Cy Young Award uh, with the Houston Astros, it always felt like the bullpen held everything for him, and the offense would come back to put him in a position to win games. Our next one comes from Michael Mahone. The O's and Reds are after years of misery, somewhere between interesting and good. 
History says that neither team will invest in youth long-term or FAs. Will this time be different for either team? Uh, my God, push back with you a little bit. I do think the Reds have demonstrated some interest in signing their young players. You know, Hunter Green, six years, $53 million is an example of that. It'll be interesting to see if they make a push on Ellie De La Cruz, some of their other uh, talented rookies. The, ask, the Orioles, on the other hand, we haven't seen anything. Like I mentioned before, they don't have a single player under contract for 2024. If you discount a club option, I think it's on Michael Gibbons on the team. Next up is Brian Roll. Cincinnati, Baltimore, Pitt, et cetera, have young and exciting teams, and I want to root for them, but their ownerships are awful. As a baseball fan, what am I supposed to do and feel about these kinds of teams? Enjoy the players, and if you want to, resent the ownership. <laughs> right. I mean, you can do those both things. We've been doing it on the, on the podcast, you know, with the Orioles. I, you know, we've been talking about the Orioles and how good the Orioles are and Hadley Rutschman and, you know, the improvement. We had Brandon Hyde in the podcast last week. And at the same time, I think it's kind of a joke that the ownership hasn't invested in the team. You can do both at the same time. Yes, both things can be true. Next yep. up is Steve Powell. What are the chances that Kansas City will have an MLB quality team by 2025? for the 10-year anniversary of their last World Series. They seem a long way off. Are they tanking? No, they're not tanking. They just have been organically bad. <laughs> Next up is Anson at Mr. Anson. Here's a question. Is there any young player right now you can see becoming a franchise GOAT? I think Flatty has a chance, assuming the Jays can keep him. It's interesting. I think among the Jays right now, young players, I'd say Bo Bichette has a better chance because he's throwing out all these hits. I, I think I mentioned either on this show or in radio uh, over the weekend, Bo Bichette is the closest thing Major League Baseball has right now to a Derek Jeter in terms of his style, in terms of generating a lot of hits, and he's going to be around for a long time. Next up is Alex Daker. The group of young Reds players seem to have a special energy to them. The atmosphere in GABP after a win on Tuesday was the best I've seen in a decade. What teams have had a similar feel to them, and what did the results look like in the following years? Yeah, I, look, I think the Orioles last year were a fun team, and it felt like they had a special energy, um, and it feels that way this year. Like there's a growing belief in their fan base for that team. I think the Blue Jays, when they ascend, because the, the fan base in Toronto uh, you know, gets so excited about what they're doing, and if you go recent years, how about the Cubs? You know, like the Cubs in 2014, 15, 16, as they ascended, won the World Series. The Astros, you know, had that. Now you go to Houston now, it's a great atmosphere to watch a ball game. And our last one for the day comes from Billy Flanagan. The local narrative about DeGrom's or surgery is at least the Rangers are winning, which proves one has nothing to do with the other. Team invested on Rocker, Orderizi, and DeGrom all having surgery. Is this on Chris Young at all? He, of course, the head of baseball operations. Sure. You know, uh, look, folks with other teams, when the, the Rangers signed into a five-year deal, they were surprised because of the, the, the number of injuries to Grom had suffered in recent years. They were shocked that the Rangers went all in. And, and uh, you know, the Rangers bet that DeGrom would be healthy enough to continue to be one of the most dominant pitchers in baseball. He has a sort of competitive uh, nature that it's easy to invest in. But as you sit here today, it looks like two of the five years will be wiped out by injury, at least. And that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Be sure to submit your questions using hashtag Bleacher Tweets, and we will be back on Monday.
That's it for today. That's it for this week. My thanks to Ravi, Todd, Sarah, and Tori Lovello. Sarah, and, and you keep giving Taylor credit. I guess I'll follow you along with that one, Sarah. <laughs> Stay safe. Have a great uh, weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. 